Hello everyone and welcome to the July 17th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulce, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. July 13 was a big day for California workers' compensation law being tested in a downtown Los Angeles federal courtroom. Federal Judge George Wu was scheduled to hear arguments for and against imposing a preliminary injunction halting the implementation of newly adopted SB 1160. This new law provides for a stay on lien claims filed by indicted medical providers until after their case has been resolved. The plaintiff in the case, Dr. Eduardo Aguizola, is facing multiple counts of insurance fraud filed by Orange County prosecutors. His federal lawsuit claims that SB 1160 and Labor Code 4615, the anti-fraud law that took effect in January, violates his rights to due process of law and to make a contract and to hire and pay his criminal defense attorneys. Dr. Aguizola is alleging that Senate Bill 1160 and the Labor Code violate the 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution. He also claims the legislation violates the Supremacy Clause and California Contracts Clause. The July 13 oral arguments on the preliminary injunction request took about 16 minutes of the crowded court calendar. Judge Wu focused the case on issues surrounding the distinction between the procedural as opposed to substantive due process requirements of constitutional law. Plaintiff attorney M. Chris Armenta had argued that there were problems with procedural due process, while Judge Wu seemed more interested in the law on substantive due process. Procedural due process aims to protect individuals from the coercive power of government by ensuring that adjudication processes under valid laws are fair and impartial. For example, procedural due process requires the right to sufficient notice, the right to an impartial arbiter, the right to give testimony and admit relevant evidence at hearings. In contrast, substantive due process aims to protect individuals against majoritarian policy enactments which exceed the limits of governmental authority. In other words, procedural due process consists of the restrictions that the law places on the legal process. And substantive due process is the determination of whether or not the law itself exceeds governmental authority. Judge Wu was concerned that attorney Arminta had not adequately briefed the issues of due process. She was given three days to prepare and file an amended brief addressing the issues of due process. The California Attorney General, who appeared for the defense, would then have until August 8th to respond, and then the plaintiff would again have until August 15th to respond to the Attorney General's brief. There was no preliminary injunction ordered at this time, and another hearing was set for August 24. The Court of Appeal reversed a finding of injury in a case brought by a deputy sheriff against the County of Sacramento. Here's what happened in the case of County of Sacramento versus WCAB and Scott McCartney. Scott McCartney was diagnosed with actinic keratosis in 2013. 
In 2014, he claimed that this injury arose out of and in the course of his employment as a deputy sheriff for the county of Sacramento. The county requested that he submit to the QME in dermatology for an evaluation. And the QME noted that McCartney had been a surfer while growing up in Southern California. When surfing, he described his skin as burning easily and he had experienced blistering sunburns. During most of his 20 years working for the county, he was on motorcycle patrol with his arms and face exposed to ultraviolet radiation, although he had used sunscreen from 1991 on. In his leisure time, he also was active outdoors with sports, exercise, and golf. At the time of the QME examination, the county had contracted his services to the city of Rancho Cordova, where he was out of doors 70% of the time. In 2013, he began noticing scabbed and crusty red lesions on his face and arms, and a biopsy showed these to be actinic keratosis, which is not itself a form of cancer. The QME could not find any documented scientific support for a 51% certainty linking the on-the-job sun exposure to the manifestation of the skin condition, because medical literature had not identified any particular dosage of sunlight as triggering it. Therefore, attributing the skin condition to any contribution from workplace sunlight, as opposed to the sun exposure McCartney received throughout his life or during his pursuit of outdoor activities in his leisure time, would simply be speculation according to the QME. At the deposition, the QME testified that sunlight is but one of the factors leading to development of these lesions, which also include aging, genetics, and the responses of the immune system. After a trial, the work comp judge found that the work-related sun exposure was not proven to be a contributing factor to McCartney's condition by a reasonable medical probability. On reconsideration, the WCAB reversed and amended the order, finding indeed that McCartney had suffered an industrial injury and that the QME applied the wrong legal standard. But the Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB, finding that McCartney did not suffer the industrial injury he alleged in the unpublished case. On appeal, McCartney argued that the 2015 case of South Coast Framing versus WCAB compelled a finding of injury. In South Coast, the decedent was taking three drugs as a result of an injury on the job. His personal physician prescribed two other drugs for anxiety and sleeplessness. He was found dead of respiratory failure with all five of the drugs present in his system. The autopsy attributed the cause to the synergistic effect of the medications and early stages of pneumonia. The Court of Appeal, however, held that the McCartney case is distinguishable from South Coast. Both McCartney and the WCAB misapprehended the QME's testimony. The QME never acknowledged that there was a causative role of unknown degree arising out of McCartney's employment. Rather, she took great pains to explain repeatedly that it was not possible to attribute the cause of McCartney's condition to any particular period of exposure to the sun. 
and therefore it was nothing more than speculation to identify the work-related exposure as a contributing cause. The Court of Appeal again found that a late IMR report does not invalidate the IMR process. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Baker versus WCAB. In 2010, Jack Baker slipped on some tools in a walkway while working as a diesel mechanic for Sierra Pacific, a company insured by the State Compensation Insurance Fund. He injured his right knee, neck, left shoulder, and psyche and received medical treatment. His PTP prescribed the drugs Pensaid and Norco in February 2014. You are timely denied the request for authorization for these drugs, and Baker appealed the UR denial using the IMR process. Both Baker and Sierra Pacific promptly submitted medical information to Maximus Federal Services, and Maximus issued its final decision in July 2014, finding the prescriptions for Norco and Pensaid not medically necessary or appropriate. After a hearing on the validity of the IMR review, the work comp judge determined that the delay of 96 days to assign this matter to an IMR reviewer was unreasonable. Applicant's appeal from his IMR was granted and it was ordered that he receive a new IMR. Maximus then issued a final determination after the second IMR in February 2015 and upheld the UR denial for the authorization for these same medications. Baker again appealed the second IMR decision. This time, the work comp judge concluded, since it was a matter of conflicting medical opinions, applicant has not met his standards of proof for his appeal. Baker filed a petition for reconsideration, which the WCAB granted. In its decision after reconsideration, the WCAB determined that the time period set forth in the labor code are directory, not mandatory, and that the failure to meet the time limits did not invalidate the IMR process. <clears throat> the Court of Appeal affirmed the WCAB in the unpublished case. The 3rd District Court of Appeal noted that in 2016, the 2nd District Court of Appeal case of the State Compensation Insurance Fund versus WCAB Magaris, the appellate court explored this very issue. In this case, the court concluded that it agreed with the Margaris court's assessment. The absence of a penalty or consequence for the failure to comply with the 30-day time limit coupled with the limited grounds for appeal, indicate that the legislature did not intend to divest the director of jurisdiction to issue an IMR determination after the 30-day window expired. CVS Pharmacy has agreed to pay $5 million to resolve Federal Controlled Substance Act allegations that its pharmacies in the Eastern District of California failed to keep and maintain accurate records of Schedule II, III, IV, and V controlled substances. The allegations resolved by the settlement were uncovered during a DEA investigation that began in 2012 after CVS self-reported thefts and losses of hydrocodone at five of its Sacramento area pharmacies. Pharmacies are obligated to report any thefts or significant losses of controlled substances to the DEA. 
In addition to the settlement payment, CVS has agreed to an administrative compliance plan with the DEA. The payment and plan resolve the allegations that CVS pharmacies failed to provide effective controls and procedures to guard against diversion. CVS acknowledged that nine CVS pharmacies in the Eastern District of California failed to fulfill federal regulations. The settlement and compliance plan cover all of the 168 CVS pharmacies that operated in the Eastern District of California. CVS made improvements to its pharmacies by instituting annual CSA compliance training of its pharmacy staff, increasing loss prevention oversight, and excluding controlled substances prescriptions from the volume metric that can impact pharmacy staff compensation. And Walmart Stores Incorporated operates over 290 retail stores in California, and nearly all of these locations have pharmacies. The company has agreed to pay $1.65 million to resolve allegations that it violated the Federal False Claims Act when it knowingly submitted claims for reimbursement to California's Medi-Cal program. Medi-Cal utilizes a formulary list commonly known as Code 1 Drugs, which designates certain restrictions for each listed drug, including restrictions pertaining to the diagnoses. Medi-Cal will reimburse certain Code 1 drugs only for approved diagnoses, taking into account criteria such as the drug's safety, efficacy, misuse potential, and cost. Pharmacies serve the critical gatekeeping function of confirming and certifying that these Code 1 drugs are dispensed for the approved diagnoses. Walmart may bill for drugs prescribed outside of the approved diagnoses only if it submits a request to DHCS that includes a justification for the non-approved use. The current settlement resolves allegations that Walmart failed to confirm and document the requisite diagnoses, and in some instances dispense drugs for non-approved diagnoses, then knowingly billed Medi-Cal for the prescriptions. The allegations were first raised in a lawsuit filed against Walmart under the key Tom or whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act by a pharmacist who has worked at Walmart locations. The whistleblower will, in this case, receive about $264,000 of the recovery proceeds. Last May, Walmart's competitor, Walgreens, paid nearly $10 million to resolve similar allegations. Walgreens is one of the largest drugstore chains in the United States, operating approximately 630 stores in California. The allegations resolved by the Walgreens settlement were first raised by two lawsuits filed against Walgreens, also under the key Tomer whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act, by a former Walgreens pharmacist and a former pharmacy technician. The whistleblowers in the Walgreens case will collectively receive approximately $2.3 million of the recovery proceeds. And now our crime report. More than 400 people across the country have been charged with participating in healthcare fraud scams, totaling about $1.3 billion in false billings, including for the prescription and distribution of opioids. Federal officials say this is the largest ever healthcare fraud enforcement action by the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. 
412 individuals, including 115 doctors, nurses, and other licensed medical professionals, were arrested in a nationwide operation that involved more than 1,000 law enforcement agents in at least 30 states. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said the operation began with tips from people in the affected communities and from very sophisticated computer programs that identify outliers. The investigation particularly focused on medical professionals who were involved in the unlawful distribution of opioids and other prescription narcotics. 120 of the 412 defendants were charged with opioid-related crimes. Six of the doctors were charged with operating a scheme in Michigan to deprive patients with unnecessary opioids, some of which were then sold on the street. A clinic in Houston allegedly gave out prescriptions for cash, and one doctor at the clinic provided 12,000 opioid prescriptions for over 2 million illegal painkiller doses and a rehab facility for drug addicts in Palm Beach, Florida, is alleged to have recruited addicts with gift cards, visits to strip clubs, and drugs billed to the government for over $58 million in false treatments and tests. FBI Director Andrew McCabe said that some doctors wrote out more prescriptions for controlled substances in one month than entire hospitals were writing. So the question then is how many of these 412 defendants perpetrated crimes in California? Well, 14 defendants, including doctors, nurses, and other licensed professionals, have been charged in the Central District of California, that's the one in Los Angeles, as part of this massive takedown. The Southern California cases allege healthcare fraud and kickback schemes involving compounded drugs, home health services, physical therapy, acupuncture, Medicare Part D prescription drugs, diagnostic sleep studies, and hospice care. The defendants charged locally include four physicians, including Dr. Jeffrey Olson. The 57-year-old physician was indicted by a federal grand jury on 34 counts of illegally prescribing controlled drugs, including oxycodone, and one count of a false statement on a DEA registration application. Olson is a resident of Laguna Beach, and he allegedly sold prescriptions to addicts and drug dealers in exchange for fixed cash fees without any medical basis for the prescriptions. Investigators also claim Olson sold hundreds of prescriptions to addicts in other states without ever seeing the patients for an in-person examination. He allegedly sold more than 1.2 million pills of narcotics, which were almost entirely at maximum strength. In another local case, Dr. Thomas S. Powers of Santa Ana and Anthony Paudano, who lives in Newport Beach, were arrested. The indictment alleges that Powers authorized prescriptions for compounded medications for patients he never examined. Paudano allegedly paid Powers $200 for each prescription, and Padano received about $1.2 million for referring the prescriptions to a local pharmacy that billed TRICARE more than $4.8 million. And Anceto Balaton of Diamond Bar, the co-manager and managing employee of Bliss Hospice in Glendora, was charged with one count of conspiracy to pay and receive illegal kickbacks for health care referrals. 
Alexander Suris and Maxim Svedlov, the co-owners and operators of Royal Care Pharmacy in Los Angeles, allegedly submitted bills for prescription drugs that were never filled by the pharmacy or were not provided to the person to whom the drug was prescribed. And Dr. Kansabian Kanasaran was indicted for a kickback conspiracy at a home health company called Star Home Health Resources. And Jamin Oliver Griffith and Damon Glover were charged with conspiring to solicit, receive, and pay illegal kickbacks for generating and steering prescriptions of compounded drugs to Valley View Drugs, Inc., a pharmacy located in La Mirada. And Zio Kimi Goodmanson, a licensed acupuncturist and owner of the Healthy Life Acupuncture Center, which operates at two sites in Los Angeles and Riverside, was charged with eight counts of health care fraud and three counts of money laundering. And the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of California, that's up around Sacramento, reports that Christopher Owens, M.D., was indicted for unlawfully prescribing oxycodone. The names and identities should be carefully checked by SIU departments against inventories of workers' compensation claims to determine if any of them have had illegal involvement in present or past claims. The Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office announced the indictment of a Los Altos acupuncturist who had been billing insurance companies for treatments never received by patients. The charges stem from falsifying more than 60 treatments charging $12,000. 50-year-old Afeng Su has been charged with two counts of making false or fraudulent claims for insurance. Sue is arranged in the Halls of Justice in San Jose. The California Acupuncture Board shows that Sue was first licensed in California in July 1996 and that his license is currently still active. No prior disciplinary actions are disclosed. The California Department of Insurance received a tip that the acupuncturist had billed insurance companies for treatment visits that never happened. It was during the investigation of a couple's treatment by acupuncturist Sue that showed the fraudulent activity. The investigation also revealed that at least one other patient caught Sue billing for fictional treatments. When confronted by his patient, Sue returned the money. Anyone with information about the case is asked to contact Deputy District Attorney Vonda Tracy at 408-792-2580. The Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office has confirmed to reporters at news station KEYT that Dr. Richard Scheinberg, an orthopedic surgeon with offices in Santa Barbara, Oxnard, Santa Maria, and Bakersfield, is under investigation. However, officials would not say why. A news crew visited Scheinberg's office near the end of June and saw at least a handful of plainclothes detectives coming into and out of the building all day long. They were removing boxes of what appeared to be files. A posted sign directed patients to reschedule their appointments with Dr. Scheinberg. The Scheinberg Orthopedic Group's website states that he is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon with more than 30 years of experience. He is currently on staff at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital, the Pueblo Surgery Center, and Carrillo Surgery Center. 
He also claims to have treated many professional athletes, including tennis player Jenny Connors, Maria Sharapova, Andre Agassi, and Patrick Rafter. Public court records shed some light on his medical business interests. He and his former wife, Celeste, had less than a friendly divorce. According to a Court of Appeal unpublished opinion, they separated in December 2009 and Celeste petitioned for dissolution. During the marriage, the parties lived on income from Richard's three corporations, Richard D. Scheinberg, MD, Incorporated, Pueblo Surgery Center, Incorporated, and Oxnard Industrial Physical Therapy, Incorporated. Celeste provided bookkeeping and billing services for these businesses. In April 2010, they stipulated to a judgment which provided Celeste $8 million in cash as her portion of the community estate and monthly spousal support of $12,500, child support of $10,000 monthly, and the opportunity to continue as Richard's medical biller with an income of at least $30,000 per month. It provided that if her billing income fell below $30,000 for two consecutive months, Celeste could request modification of spouse support. And when Celeste's billing income indeed fell below the agreed-upon level, Celeste moved the court for modification of her spousal support and sought damages for breach of contract. The doctor then moved to terminate her employment contract, among other things. A mediation of these disputes in August 2012 resulted in a settlement agreement in which the parties terminated their employment relationship and the doctor agreed to pay his former wife a lump sum spousal support payment of $1.6 million in exchange for a waiver of further spousal support. But that was not the end of their litigation. The parties went on to dispute the proceeds of an IRS tax refund check in the amount of over $400,000 payable to Celeste. That dispute was resolved by the 2014 unpublished Court of Appeal opinion. Scheinberg is a 1975 graduate of Duke University School of Medicine, and he has been licensed as a physician and surgeon in California since 1980. Anyone with relevant information about Dr. Scheinberg's practice is asked to call John Sarvnock with the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office at 805-568-2300. Time will tell if the investigation will lead to a prosecution for some reason or to nothing at all. And in medical news, a new study published in Spine examines workers' compensation patients with degenerative spinal stenosis. The aim of this study was to compare outcomes in workers' compensation subjects receiving decompression alone versus decompression and fusion for the indication of degenerative spinal stenosis without deformity or instability. The 364 patients included in the study from the Ohio Workers' Compensation Database either underwent primary decompression or primary decompression and fusion between. The primary outcome to be measured was if the patients were able to make a stable return to work. The authors classified subjects as return to work if they returned within two years after surgery and remained working for more than six months. A number of secondary outcomes were also collected and analyzed. 
and the study authors found that the decompression only patients reported a higher return to work rate, 36%, compared with 25% in the fusion group. Fusion was a negative predictor of return to work status. Subjects who received an adjunctive fusion accrued more than $46,000 in costs accrued over three years after their surgery compared with subjects who received decompression alone. The study authors concluded that fusion had a significantly negative impact on the outcomes for workers' compensation patients. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.